Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Sean Shapiro. Sean, what's going on, man? I am, uh, you're, well, you're the only one who can see this, but it's the uh, first, uh, I've taken my first uh, trip post-COVID, post-getting two vaccines. I'm actually talking to you in my hotel room, and so for the first time in like, I don't know, forever, I'm eating unhealthy food like close to midnight because... I've been living in my own house and I have tried to limit myself from doing that. And so now I am, uh, I've got the beer, I've got combos and, uh, bad habits apparently return as soon as, uh, they return quickly. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I've cracked a beer here as my well, as well. We're recording later than I usually, I usually record in the mornings. So we're doing like a, an evening show here recording on a Wednesday. Um, it's gonna be fun. I feel like we've got a good catalog of shows going together. I was reflecting on all the ones we've done. And we, of course, I think our first one was, um, it was like the summer of 2018 when Eric Carlson was available and he was linked to mm-hmm. the stars and we were talking about whether they should trade him for Heiskanen. Um, we did the legendary one after the, uh, the effing, <laughs> effing horse bleep episode, which was an all timer. Uh, we hung out in your hotel room before COVID and drank beers and talked about Dennis Gariano for an hour the Dennis system. And, uh, and we did a deep dive about the stars on route to their appearance at a cup final last year. So, uh, this is the, uh, the fifth installment, I think of this, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, you're not covering the team, the Dallas stars, that is on a day-to-day basis anymore. You switched to a different role, the athletic. Um, but at the same time, you do have a good grasp on, on, on the happenings of the team. And, uh, you were going to a bunch of their games this year. So I figured, you know, we're going to get into more league wide stuff in the back half of the show and talk about broadcast and you're somebody reporting on the leagues, new TV deals and stuff in the States. But I figured we had to talk about this stars team because I haven't talked about them much on the podcast this year. And first off, they're entrenched in one of the few remaining sort of playoff races of intrigue 
uh, heading into this final couple weeks of the regular season, but also I feel like even for their own standards, this year has been so remarkably starsy that uh, it warrants our attention and a conversation about whatever the hell has been going on with them this season. Yeah. Um, as you said, I, I don't cover the team anymore, but I probably made it to about a third of the home games this year in Dallas. I'm actually, I moved, I'm, I moved up to, I moved this past weekend out of Texas, but this was the, you moved to Michigan, right? Yep. yep moved to Michigan. So, uh, what a I'll big get, couple of weeks for Michigan getting first Jakob Rana and then Sean Shapiro is huge. Big, big weeks, big weeks for Michigan. Um, but I did spend up until uh, this past, uh, Past week, I was living in Dallas still and went to about a third of third, eh, a third, maybe half of all the Stars home games. So obviously saw them more than any other team. And so and, and obviously still have a good grasp on what's going on there. And yeah, I mean, that team, what a uh, I, I, I laugh uh, when Saad, Saad Yusuf took and he's done a great job when he took over the beat for me. I told him it's going to be uh, I think you and I have probably used this line on the podcast at some point in one of the prior five appearances of most exciting team until the game starts. And somehow this season, it's been uh, it's not super exciting, but it's been oddly entertaining. There's been a lot for him to write about. I mean. The, the overtime losses alone are just, are just laughable to me. Like this team, it, we're, we're talking 12 overtime losses with yeah, 49 games right now. Like that's a pace for, I'm not the math guy, but that's a pace for something like 18 or 19 in an 82 game season. <laughs> yeah. And at some point I think they won their first one and then they lost 12 of 13 games that went past regulation before finally going on a bit of a streak here recently. But I, I think what's so interesting about them is if you look at the overall, just if you just pull out the standings page and you hadn't been following the season, you'd be like, this is the most just average generic season an NHL team could have, right? They're like around 500. They're like on the cusp of a playoff spot. Um, there's nothing necessarily of note there. And I think the, the ride there has certainly been all over the place and there's been very big highs and very low lows. And we're going to get into all that, but I found the most starsy stat of their just complete average is this season. So they've played 3,004 total minutes so far. They've spent 1,004 of them. So pretty much exactly a third leading. They spent 1,005 minutes. So nearly identical tied and they spent 996 minutes trailing. So pretty much just split. You just carve the game down into three thirds yeah. and it's just, it's so beautifully symmetrical and it comes out to this perfectly even package and there's no team like it really but the yeah. ride there has been so notable and it'll be great I'd, we'd have to do the exact math but like they opened the season they uh they blasted nash like they're plus 11 right now like overall for the season like they blasted nashville and detroit in the first four games of the season like if you take away i think we'd have to do the exact math maybe we, we could even do that easily right now i believe if you took away those first four games they may be at exactly zero um just running complete complete even since they kind of remember we all remember how poor nashville started and how bad detroit is if we take away kind of that that launching point i think we're at complete zero zero sum hockey for 45 games <laughs> that's that's going to be the title of today's podcast zero sum hockey i'm loading it down right now yeah they've pretty much been alternating wins and losses for the entirety of the season and that's a great encapsulation of it um yeah, I mean, listen, like uh, the reason why I, I do want to highlight this playoff race, though, is as I said, is 
you know, technically the door is still open, I guess, for fourth in the West and the East divisions, but both those cases, like the team that's currently sitting in the driver's seat is up in points and has games in hand. So it seems like they have a pretty, pretty good advantage there here yeah. in the central, the, the Preds technically are up two points on the stars at the time of this recording, but the Dallas stars have two games in hand on them. They play each other one final time on April 1st coming up here. Um, so I, I do think it'll be very close. I think Michael McCurdy's most recent projection had him at like the stars were 61.6 points and the predators were 61.4 or something. It's pretty much as close as, as you can have. It might even come down to a tiebreaker, honestly, which I think unfortunately the, the predators have it in regulation wins, but um, yeah, it's, it's two very tight teams. And at the same time, I'm sure you went through this dance with the stars quite a bit over the couple of years you covered them, but the process seems pretty sound. I think basically based on any underlying metric you look at, which is what the show does, they look like the far superior team to the predators, right? Like they're yeah. significantly better at five on five. They've got that positive goal differential. You mentioned, I think, uh, you know, those shootout and overtime losses obviously aren't ideal and might say something negative about, uh, you know, the underlying process for them. But at the same time, if they get into the playoffs, that's not something you have to worry about. Cause you're never playing three on three or going into skills competitions. And so like, just purely in terms of being a five on five team and some of the performance indicators we look at, this should be a far superior team, but we're heading into these final, whatever, five to seven games for both teams. And it's about as close as it's like a dead heat between the two of them. It, yeah. And it's like, you think you look at how Dallas has played and both the metrics, like the five on five, the metrics line up. And as you mentioned on that, but even like you watch them play and they're, they're a good hockey team. And they are, they are a better hockey team than Nashville. I've watched Nashville and Dallas both in person enough times. Dallas is a better hockey team, particularly obviously in, when, in, in the main facet of the game on five on five. And Dallas is a better hockey team, even with, and this is something I'm sure we'll talk even more about. Dallas is a better hockey team without all of their actual good players. Like there's no red, the Gradulov is, is only played what 11, 13 games. They're, they've had a goalie tandem that has been without their Vesna finalist from two years ago. Sagan hasn't played at all. I mean, this is a team that is a good hockey team with a fourth line that the other night was Joel Esperance, Justin Dowling, and Tanner Caro. Like, that's a, and no disrespect, all three very nice humans, actually. Oh, but, those, are, uh, those are definitely three names. Yeah. <laughs> those, are, those are three names. And Dallas, I mean, Dallas is. <laughs> If they were just a little bit now, you make your own luck, right? And so, in over in the overtime thing, the overtime thing is kind of it's hard to say they're unlucky because you kind of have to. It's been around enough as a coach, you have to better handle it. So I can't call it completely unlucky. But if they were slightly better in that facet of the game, say they're even, they've got twelve overtime losses. Say they win just, I don't know, just five of those. We're looking at a spot where they're. They were what about two, three points ahead of Nashville with two games in hand. And I, and, and it's kind of one of those things where you, they're, they're locking it down because that's what the Dallas stars do when they get a lead, they lock things down and it gets boring and they would do that in the standing. And so it's just really, they've mismanaged, they've been both unlucky and they've also mismanaged overtime too, because they have their things and tweaks where you can pick here and there. And, and this is one of those things where, this may be one of those things where we talk about Rick bonus, where Rick bonus as a coach, he is give him a lot of credit for what he's done dating back to helping the stars get through that crazy Jim Montgomery firing. And obviously 
keeping, and he's real that calming voice that all the players love playing for in the bubble. But one of the reasons Rick Bonus was an assistant coach for so long and has never really had that head coaching role hold is kind of that kind of it factor that in that that making that final decision, and that's where you kind of need that in from a coaching perspective in that overtime selection. Um, I think too often, for example. Too often in overtime, sometimes it works, but too often they throw out someone like Radic Fox or Blake Como to start overtime and Essa Lindell just be like, okay, we're going to play defensive. And it would be one thing if that was working all the time, but they're still losing overtime games. Like it would be one thing if it was. <laughs> so I, I just think it's kind of, you can't rip on Rick bonus for what he's done, but you also have to, he's obviously he's moved past the point of being that interim guy. He's the full-time head coach. He deserves definitely some blame for, this team should be five, six points higher in the standings, and they should be the one playing with the lead in this final race over Nashville as opposed to the way it is. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. So the Preds are 12, four, and two in one goal games. The Stars are eight, six, and 12, uh, including two and 12 in games uh, decided pass. Well, they two, there were two and 12 in games yeah. decided pass regulation. They won their most recent three. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I generally in a 56 game season, like there's so much less uh, time for that stuff to even out. I mean, we're kind of seeing it right now yeah. with the stars having won their past three, right. It's kind of like that regression oh, yeah. that you'd expect to see, but the time's dwindling here for that to kind of fully take hold. And so at the same time, uh, teams with uh, let's say blowout wins are wins of three or more goals. So like pretty decisive for the most part, yeah. uh, the only ones with more, blowout quote unquote blowout wins than the stars this year are Vegas, the Rangers, Colorado, Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay, and Minnesota. They've got 13 of them. The Preds only have eight. Uh, you see that in the goal differential, right? I think they're they're plus 15 yeah. for the year. The Preds are minus 10. And so that combined with the five on five metrics where I believe they're pretty much top five or six in like every single from shot share to yeah. expected goals to high danger, it's all stuff you like to see, right? And and that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to translate to them uh, jumping leapfrogging Nashville because Nashville has UC Soros playing out of his mind. And, and, you know, in Nashville's defense as well, like they've battled their own set of injuries and not having their key players as you alluded to, right? Like Philip Forsberg hasn't played at all in February. They had Ellis out for 20 games. Yossi was out at home was out. Like they've, they've navigated their own sets of uh, trials and tribulations this season, but for the stars, like, I guess when you're having this conversation, we have to acknowledge the impact that, um, the weird nature of the season has, has had, um, like, it feels like there has been kind of a cloud hanging over them from like the literal outset, right? Like the the start of their regular season was delayed because the entire team was basically in COVID protocol. They didn't get started until 10 games after everyone, uh, they'll have jammed 40 games into 69 days, 69 days. Uh, since the start of March, which is nice, but uh, for them, maybe not so nice in terms of trying to optimize player performance. And so it feels like kind of like that, like Simpsons monkey paw situation, right? Where like they last year wished like, all right, we want to make it to the Stanley Cup final. And then they got that and the net result. And then the, you know, the negative trickle down effect of that was pretty much everything going wrong that possibly could have. And it just feels like they've had some sort of stink on them this season where, uh, you know, from player injuries to weird performances, it's been following them all year. Yeah. It's like that kind of net hangover too, from that, that playoff run where it's the combination of some of it, you could have expected just like with 
the Sagan injury and the Bishop injury and stuff like that. That's stuff where by having the Bishop one's a whole nother issue, but the Sagan injury. And for example, the Sagan injury is one where he played through the labrum tear and all that stuff. And, and then you have Ben all, you look at all of the injuries that guys kind of the wear and tear that that team went through, um, like the list is so long. You, you, you name a name and they, they probably, they were dealing with something, whether we know about it or not in that playoff. And then even into this season, like a guy like, uh, like, I mean, Rope Hintz, for example, like just think about what would happen if Rope Hintz was actually healthy. He's playing with a undisclosed lower body injury um, yeah. <laughs> that he's essentially from, and I'm 99% sure I know what it is, but he's playing through a late undisclosed lower body injury where he is, it depends on how he feels that day. He's not practicing. He's not going through morning skates. He shows up to the rink. He shows up to the rink. He goes through treatment to be able to play that night if he's able to play. And then once he plays, he's the best player on the ice. Like, yeah. like if he was, if he, if, if he was fully healthy, it would be, it would be such a different story. <laughs> like, like, yeah, he has, he has, he's been there, but objectively their best oh, yeah. player this season. And it is wild to think that, uh, you know, he, yeah, he's been either day to day or a game dime decision, uh, which I, I know, uh, I've seen like fantasy owners have been infuriated with cause they never know when he's playing, but it's just the, the reality that, that he's dealing with where, um, oh. and you know, I struggle with, like, we don't want to glorify, like, you know, that players yeah, yeah, need to play have- through hurt, hurt and stuff. Right. Like it's, you know, he seems to be managing it, but at the same time, you know, you, you do wonder, um, what's going on there. Like it's been described as he's held together by, by a string and duct tape and mm-hmm. Elliot Friedman's recent 31 thoughts. And, and, and that sounds like an accurate description, but so at least they've gotten games out of him, right? You go, they got less than 200 minutes this season out of Alex Radulov or he was ruled yep. out for the year. Ben Bishop has made, made, had, didn't make an appearance and won't Tyler Sagan has yet to play. He presumably will play at some point here down the stretch. Uh, we'll see, but that's like $21 million in cap oh, commitments God, yeah. between those three that they haven't really gotten anything out of the season. And, and on top of it. Yeah. And then on top of you had two just, and it, this isn't a surprise because we kind of, we knew this and I actually, I mean, you, you add into the fact there's the 2.8 million to a top four defenseman in Steven Johns, whose career is essentially over too. Yep. Like there's just, there's that now we're, I'm not really counting him as part of that because he's a much different situation than the, something like a, let's say, but it's still, it just adds to that whole, if we start running the ledger on, on what this team is actually paying for and what it's actually getting just on the raw numbers, it's, it's, it's insane. It's crazy. Well, and the, you know, a player that has played, but I'm not really sure how to evaluate his performance this season has been Anton Hudobin. And mm-hmm. yep. the reason why I say that is because I feel like there's so many kind of contextual complicating factors and I, and I, I don't want to be unfair to him. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. how to evaluate a goalie who's played 30 games because on the one hand, it could just be completely random because that position is so volatile and like the yeah. best goalies in the world have 30 game stretches where they just don't have good numbers. And it happens uh, at the same time. He's turning 35. I believe here, he just played 25 playoff games in like a six week stretch at the end of last season, which is probably the most in, you know, grueling stretch of yeah. pro hockey he's ever really played in his career, or at least in, in many years. Um, and the reason why I, the complicating part is, you know, we know uh, publicly that he's dealt with COVID before the season 
and mm-hmm. talked on the record about how he struggled with the recovery of it. And so you put all of that together and it's like so difficult for me to evaluate what's been going on with his performance, especially moving forward when you're thinking about what's what they're going to do in net moving forward. Right. You know, Jake Ottinger's look good, obviously, uh, especially for a guy who's 22 years old and making his first real stint around the league this year and has been perfectly yeah. fine. Ben Bishop, you don't know what you're going to get from him. Anton Hudobin, both those guys have two years left on their deals, I believe, after this season. So just in terms of like figuring out what you're going to get from Anton Hudobin as a goalie moving forward, I don't want to forget how recently removed we are from him looking amazing and winning all of our hearts over by being just a legendary character who was making ridiculous saves. But like he has not been good this season. No, and I, and I think that's something you can bring a point to of winning over our hearts. I think something that stars fans have to do, and I don't think they want to do it is you need to separate folk hero, Anton Hudobin versus goalie Anton Hudobin, because Hudobin, the story of Anton Hudobin in the bubble was tremendous. Arguably speaking, he was just good in the bubble. It's not like this was not J.S. Jaguar dragging the ducks to the final. This was not Yaro Halak with individually winning series. Like, Hudobin was good, but it was the story that was great. It was the 30 something. It was the 34 year. He had some great performances. He he did. He did. But, but just as far as the whole concept of that, this is as far as an all time that he also had some duds and he was just okay at some time. So I think it's very hard from a stars fan perspective to separate the folk legend of Anton Hudobin and the goalie Anton Hudobin. And so I think it's what makes him even harder to assess just kind of when, cause you try to separate that stuff And this season. He's, he's not been good this year. He, he has not been good. And it's, it's hard to, it's hard to figure out whether is it the, the wear and tear and the breakdown from playing all those games in the bubble. Is it the fact that he could hardly work out because of COVID or is it simply the fact that, and this may just be the case. It's a lot easier to be number two than number one. When, when, with, with him and Ben, when he was number two and you're the number two guy and you're pushing Ben Bishop and you're challenging him to try to steal minutes from him, it's a lot easier to do that than be supposedly be the guy and now be the guy that someone's pushing. So I, I, I think there's an element to that as well where he'll type of thing someone, the goalie will never admit, says, no, I always want the net and everything like that. But there are reasons certain guys, it's in Boston, why does the tandem work so well? Halak knows he's technically number two. But he's, but he's pushing Rask. That's And Hudobin kind of lost the guy that he's supposed to push, the guy he's supposed to, to try to steal some minutes from. But at the end of the day, we all know who would get game one of the playoffs. It's, I, I think there's something there to, to that as well. And that's just more of my own gut feeling and theory of Hudobin is a tremendous 1B. When he, become, when he has to become a 1A, it, that's a harder role than than being one B just, it's just, I think just, I think it's a fair assessment personally, because I'm saying it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so he's got a nine Oh seven state percentage this yeah. year, a uh, minus 7.2 goals. They have expected like his numbers don't look that bad because the stars are so good defensively where I think oh, yeah. like, they give up mm-hmm. the second fewest high danger attempts and expected goals against and whatnot. So like, we're not talking about like catastrophic numbers here, but I think just the way he's looked and I'm far from a, uh, a goalie evaluator in terms of watching their technique and being like, Oh, this is like what they need to tinker with here. But I think it's pretty clear just from the raw eye test that he has looked off. And I I thought, 
you know, the, the one goal he gave up against the Red Wings recently, like that pop fly where he flubbed it and it went through him basically and tapped in from behind. That was kind of like a fluke event. But a few games before that, I thought Razor made a really astute point on one of the broadcasts where he was kind of saying like, yeah, Hudobin hasn't looked very sharp this season in terms of like the way he's reading pucks and like how he's reacting to them. It feels like he has flubbed a lot of pucks where he's just not fully like realizing yeah, where it's going. He's made up. Yeah, the reads have not been there, right? He's made up right. for it because of how athletic he is. He's and that's why he's been, and that's why the stars are, have been able to handle and survive how his play has been. But the initial reads, you look at where he's starting and, and sometimes it even creates a highlight reel save. And it's something where you'll look and, Oh, that's a great save. But there's too many times where he's sometimes even creating those own scenarios for himself where you're looking whether it's the two on one and reacting or not, not reacting slow, but not picking up on the fact that this guy's coming down the wing or committing only the shot, or it's, it's way more, it's, it's a lot of things like that. And I don't know, maybe there's a theory and I don't know, we'd have to ask a goalie coach to this. Maybe there's something to the fact of there's not been much practice time and goalies have goalies with, with how condensed the schedule is. Maybe there hasn't been the time to, just spend it, spend time with his goalie coach and work on that. Maybe, I don't know. I'm just throwing random theories out there right now, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's a really tricky one for me to evaluate. I just wanted to point out uh-huh. he hasn't looked good and there's it's many fair, possible explanations for why, but. And it's um, a fair point. And it's, it becomes even the bigger question too, of just if this team does get in, you had told me before the season, hey, Ben Bishop wouldn't play. You would say with 100% lock that, okay, Anton Udoman's going to play in the playoffs. If this team does get in, and Anton Udoman would probably, because it's Rick Bonus and that's how he coaches, he clubs his veterans, Anton Udoman would probably get game one. But if they lose game one, 5 4, what's stopping Jake Ottinger from being. Well, game two. Like, Ottinger has objectively been the more reliable goalie this season. Mm-hmm. I do think it's like, very tantalizing from the coach's perspective of even during this bad year for him. I think it was a couple games there in Florida against the Panthers earlier in the year where he stopped like 98 of a hundred shots in two games or something like that. And it's like, there's very few goalies in the world that can realistically do what Anton Hudobin can do when he's at the top of his game. He he flips switches really well, right? Like it's something where you can tell, like there's a game that you can tell where there's games where that, that switch has been flipped and he's not getting beaten that night or it's going to take something remarkable and the stars can weather a 75 shot storm that night. And so <laughs> you know, yeah. I've seen too many of those games. I've seen many of those games. So yeah, I could see the pain in your eyes. Um, okay. Well, <laughs> let's, let's talk about something more positive because okay. the combination of Rupe hints and Jason Robertson uh-huh. for me has been uh, a bright light in yep. this season. Uh, and, you know, people are starting to catch on to it. We can talk more about Robertson's Calder candidacy and, and discussion between him and Kaprizov. Uh, but I wanted to focus more on, on, on sort of the combination of, of those two and the way they've played off of each other. Cause you know, yeah. for me, it's we're, we, we alluded to and talked about how Hints is clearly playing hurt. And it's crazy to think that it is a lower body injury. That's bugging a player who relies on his wheels as much as he does. And when he's played, like he's still creating off the rush at this breakneck speed and just producing at, you know, he's got 38 points in 36 games. I think he's the top yeah. 10 in terms of points per minute uh, generated. And so the combo of, of, of him and Robertson, I'm always so fascinated by like 
complementary skill sets, right? And like trying to get yeah. the most out of both players involved. And I think it's pretty clear that they've stumbled on something here where, you know, with Hintz, his playmaking and ability to create off the rush and Robertson's sort of willingness to do a lot of the dirty work around the net without necessarily feeling like he needs to do the heavy lifting in terms of puck carrying. I feel like those yeah. two have played off of each other so well and they're clearly getting great results out of them, but I really think like they've stumbled upon a legitimate combination here. That's producing like a top line pair. And there's no reason to believe they won't assuming Hins can stay healthy. Yeah, they have. And I think like, I, I find kind of, I use this comparison. I was trying to explain this to someone the other day, and I don't know if this will make any sense to anyone else, but I was just trying to explain kind of why they fit so well the other day to someone. And I actually brought up a soccer analogy where Robertson's kind of like that striker who knows that he can drop back and he can drop into the space and he can do, and he doesn't, he's technically the guy who's supposed to be up top, but he knows that there's that, 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 that flashy winger that when he steps back, the other guy will step into that space. I kind of, I use that. And I don't know if enough people will get that analogy or not, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's I one I used the other it. day. I was trying to, I was trying to explain to someone who was more of a soccer fan than a hockey fan the other day, but it, it, they do play. They, it's, it's, it's kind of about that where, Robertson is his hockey IQ and his offensive IQ is, is off the charts. It's great. And you think about one of the things we heard about Robertson from his draft year on, and I've actually have talked to Jason about it multiple times and he can finally, he can laugh at it. Now it was always the, is he going to be able to skate well enough to play in the NHL? Is he going to be able to skate well enough to the NHL? The skating is going to hold him back. The skating, 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 yada, yada, yada. And he's a much better skater now. He's still not going to be a great, he's still not a great skater. It's still, it's never going to be pretty, but the, the wherewithal to know where to go, the work he does. And then I think the thing that is that we see is just the little, um, the ability to put that skill to go from working to putting that skill in to make that, that snap to switch right away. That's, that's kind of the difference between a guy who can, is a career fourth line, good player. And a guy who has potential to be a great in, in the Calder trophy conversation in Robertson. Like I think there was the play, there was the uh, play the other night where uh, he had the assist the other night where the puck comes to him from below the goal line. And 95% of rookies in the NHL shoot that puck right into the goalie's gut. And he makes the little slide pass over to Ben for the easy put away, just little things like that, where, and he, that comes after a nice forecheck and it's the perfect compliment for Hints, even more so in a year where Hints is, uh, is banged up and can't do as much of that work. And like, you look at the bubble from, for Dallas, what happened, one of the things, one of the issues for, Hints and Gurionov, one of the reasons they didn't work together is they were go, 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 right? They were, they were so fun on the rush. They were so fun in transition. But once they got into the offensive zone, it was like they needed to almost like circle back to start over again. Yeah. Instead, now they have hints. They have hints with that guy that can do the work in the zone and, and kind of help and, and kind of take a little bit of that and then create for him. And at the same time, they've got that other line where Gurionov is playing with Ben and it works kind of well, where Ben is a very similar player where he can do that work. So, so Gurionov can be the, basically the guy that streaks up and down the flank. It's, it works really well. Um, and it's something where it's, I talked about, it's a shame that Hints hasn't been able to play more. It's a shame. It's not only for Hints' sake, it's a shame to see what Hints and Robertson would be able to do if fully healthy. And you like, 
you, we always kind of talk about those long-term combinations and guys that you build around. Like that's a fun, really fun combination to think about long-term, even if, especially as they're going to have whoever the third guy is going to keep rotating out because obviously it's, that's how these things work in the NHL right now. It's Joe Pavelski some nights, whatever, but, um, yeah, I could see Tyrus again being there when when he slots in. But yeah. you know, since March first, I'm using that kind of as a neat cutoff here because that is sort of roughly when they started playing full time. Yeah. They've played 295 on five minutes together, 60.4% shot share, goals are 21 to eight. And you know, it's funny you mentioned Robertson skating because I would I would say it's still not good. Oh, like, it's not good. No, it's not like, good. I was like, being, I was being, I was being nice. It's, it's still not good. <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't really have, uh, the extra acceleration gear. And the only reason I bring that up is because it doesn't matter. Like, yeah. and, and that's a testament to how great of a hockey player he is. And it kind of reminds me of someone like Mark Stone, obviously a wildly different player, but also mm-hmm. someone who you watch him. It looks like he's like skating with like cinder blocks on, and it makes no sense, but he's always the first one to the puck because he reads the ice so well and he can sort of yeah. make calculated decisions on where he needs to go and sort of pick his battles, right? And I've got some amazing Jason Robertson stats for you that I'm going to drop on you right now and hit you with. Okay. Because, and listen, I know that despite the name of the show, the PDO cast, I normally try not to spend too much time reciting a bunch of numbers because... I just find it doesn't make for very compelling audio experience for listeners to hear me just like rattling off numbers. But at the same time, in this case, I think they're really functional and they're also going to help people that aren't, haven't watched a ton of Jason Roberts and kind of familiarize themselves with how he yeah. plays and why he's been so productive. And so I've been using, uh, you know, since I started writing at elite prospects, I've got access to instat hockey, which gives me like all the tracking information and stuff in terms mm-hmm. of like pulling up clips and stuff. Right. And you can search yeah. by specific sequences and events they have labeled for you for every player, like, and, you know, break it down into the most like micro sets you want. But for Jason Robertson, I was looking, I was curious. Cause I was like, I feel like when I watch him play, he gets the puck and it's instantly off his stick. Like you never really see him sort of loitering around in the neutral zone with it. And it, I think it's why it's made him such a great combination with Hints because Hints loves carrying the puck. And so for Robertson, he's sort of the simplicity of his game. And I think it speaks like a maturity of a player who's as young as he is and has a little experience being willing to be like, hey, I'm not very good at this and my line mate is great at this. So I'm going to let him do this and I'm going to try to be complimentary where I can, right? And so I was looking at it. He's like, he's like the pinball bumper. Yeah, he is. He gets it. He quickly moves yeah. it and then he instantly goes to the open space. And he's got... So I don't, this probably isn't like a very detailed number because sometimes you watch it and it's like, oh, that didn't necessarily look like what this tracking software is leading me to believe it was, but they've got Jason Robertson listed for 12 stick handling events this season in terms of like making some sort of move on the move with the puck. And to put in perspective, how small of a number for a 40 something game sample is, Kirill Kaprizov, who we'll talk to as... Uh, his Calder foil has 91 stick handling events so far, according to his dad. And like Rupe Hintz has 42 of them, I believe, or whatever in, in 35 yeah. games. And it's like a, a, a very, very low number. And it's not um, by, you know, it's not an accident. I don't think is what I'm trying to, trying to get to. I, I think it yeah. really is by design and he understands that that's the way he needs to play and kudos to him because he's getting the most out of the skills he does have, which is, 
when he gets the puck in tight, he's impossible to knock it off of. He has great skill and hands around to score. Uh, I think 12 of his 15 goals so far or so by my count have been within like a foot or two of the goal crease. He's had a couple off the rush where he shot it from far out, but pretty much all of it has been, you know, dirty work around the net, which is amazing for a player of his, uh, of his age and his experience to be already doing that at this point. So yeah, it's, he's such a wildly different player than Kaprizov, which is part of what makes the conversation yeah. so interesting to me. Like they couldn't be more polar opposites in terms of the way they play, but they've both been so successful. And that's the awesome part of this, that there isn't necessarily one way you can play to be good. Like they're both showing us that you can do it any number of ways. Yeah. The, the Robertson Kaprizov thing is really interesting. And, and we can talk about that because it is, it is, it is a factor of, there are two different ways to play. And you and I were, I was joking with you on the Twitter messages when I said Roberts, you and I, when I messaged, I said Robertson for call there when we messaged you. But at the end of the day, and as much as, as a hockey nerd, I love watching what Jason Robertson does. But as someone who wants to be entertained, as someone who wants to be the what's next, the wow factor, you watch Cap, you, you watch Kaprizov. Like, I, you watch a wild game for Kaprizov. You watch Jason Robertson play because you're a hockey fan and you, and, you, and, you, and you look for that nuance. Kaprizov you watch just because I want to I see something that's going to put me, that, 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 that's going to blow my mind. Robertson only really does that if you are a hockey nerd. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a very interesting kind of dynamic. And yeah, you could show a clip of Kaprizov to anyone that doesn't understand hockey and they'll be like, wow, that was a ridiculous play. Whereas yes. Robertson, you need to kind of be like, Oh, like he read the coverage there and found the soft spot in the offensive <laughs> zone. Like, nope, not only massive nerds and huge stars fans would probably truly appreciate that. But like, it's, it's still oh, yeah. uh, an equally important attribute. Not everyone can just be dangling around. You need players that can do the stuff Robertson does and he does it so well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting too, when you talk about like the Calder trophy too, like there's the other two, the other big element that just to discuss. And I know some people, it, one of the things that comes up is Kaprizov is, is, is older. He's what 24 now, right? Who, who he's played, he's played, he's played in the cage and played in the KHL for as long as he did. And, um, and Robertson is, uh, 21, uh, he's 22 now. He's, either, turning, either way, he's, he's turning 22 in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Either, either way, younger player. Um, and it's, I don't know what the right judgment on that is. I'm kind of of the thought process where, 24 i'm still okay with the a i don't know what your thoughts are on i i'm fine with like to me a rookie is a rookie unless like like i think if someone i think if he was 25 26 maybe that starts to get to the conversation for me where like should we really be considering him a rookie or whatever but to me it's i'm okay with his age personally I, I think it's he's a first-year NHL player, and that's what the award is. So I don't think we should hold that against Kaprizov. And I also think, just personally, and as much as Jason Roberts' season been, has been tremendous, um, you look at kind of what that final difference is. Like, you talk about team success, right? Champions aren't born. They're made. And the secret to make your business reign supreme? Shopify the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Forget the off-season work. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. 
Whether you're selling warm-ups or wall hangers, it's time to start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build the relationships that create die-hard fans. Shopify fields all the sales channels to grow a winning business from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Shopify is a secret to becoming a business champion by making it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere, taking the guesswork out of selling. When you're ready to take your winning idea to the world, team up with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash bluewire, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash bluewire to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash bluewire. Who is, and if Dallas gets in, Robertson is going to play a big factor in that, but where Minnesota is, they are where they are because of him, like at the yep. end of the day. And it's, 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 it's an interesting, it's, there's so many elements of this that you can, have the debate and you can discuss and everything like that. And um, the, I think the most important thing though, is before, as we went into this season and two weeks into this season, it was, we all knew who the Calder winner was. There wasn't going to be a debate at all. And now we can at least have a debate. And I think that's good for the sport. Honestly. It is. Um, let's take a quick break here. And then, uh, you know, I've got some thoughts on uncle Prezov and the Calder, and then we can uh, finish up the, the podcast there. Yeah. So I've loved both players. Uh, I think Kaprizov still does have the advantages because of the totality of the work. Uh, I think, you know, the, the highlight plays and how they exciting he been, he clearly has the edge there um, in terms of just like the phenomenon he's been, I think, as you mentioned, the, the fact that Robertson's made this a race considering he started the year playing four fine minutes and had two goals in his first 12 games or whatever, is a remarkable story in its own right, not to give him a, a particip- participation uh, ribbon here for finishing second, but it's like, it's what he's done over the past 33 to 35 games since the start of March is he's been as good as anyone. Like he's literally top 10 in pretty much every single offensive metric. Um, you know, for me with Kaprizov, the moving of the goalposts in season really bugs me uh, in the sense that if you want to argue that the age bothers you or the pro experience before this season in the KHL, that's fine. I have time for that argument. That shouldn't be held against Kaprizov now because that's not what the award is about. The award is yeah. about who had the best first season in the NHL, assuming they're under 26 or whatever, not who's going to have the best developmental arc over the next five years. If you factor in their age and their NHL experience, like that's yeah. not that's, what this that's is fair. about. And I think for me, like, what Kaprizov's done this season, considering that he is a 24 year old now with all of that pro experience in the KHL is even more remarkable to me, considering what, how he's transformed the Minnesota wild organization in the sense that he comes over with these massive expectations, right? Like he, the Minnesota wild waiting years for him as hockey fans that have been paying attention. We've been seeing the stats and the highlight reels from the KHL and being like, I can't wait to see what this guy looks like in the NHL. And for him to come in and pretty much from day one, like literally in his first game, he scores the overtime winner against the Kings and just hasn't looked back since. Uh, for him to make that transition for me so seamlessly has been even more impressive. And, you know, not to knock Robertson's case, but he was playing in Texas in the AHL last year. 
had three games, a cup of coffee with the stars, I believe at some point in the season, like the, it was afforded the ability to kind of, you know, slide into the role and not necessarily need to carry the team from, from day one, like what Kaprizov's done. And you know, that he's gotten the opportunity all season, which accounts for some of the offensive production, obviously, but like, I don't think we should lose sight of that just because he's a 24 year old. Well, I also, I agree with that. I also think there's also value and this is the pro Kaprizov case. And one of the reasons that I think at this point I'm saying, obviously we'll see what happens in the last couple of games, but I also think we need to remember if you're using it to find the slimmest of margins, you can talk about how a guy finished the season. But I think when I look at the rookie of the year award, there's value in being the best rookie from day one to game 82 or game one through game 56 in this season. I think there's a credible value in that. I think, um, I think there's something to speak to on that where um, I don't, it's, it's not the, it's not the rookie who looked the best the last three months of the season. It's the rookie who was the rookie of the year. Now, if someone from, from, from my perspective, say you're talking, looking at someone like Robertson who has been great over the last, he, for him to, to steal the call there from Kaprizov, he has to outplay him by a ton in the last week. He has to outplay him by so much in the last couple of weeks of the season that you're like, okay, you know what? That makes up for that first month when Kaprizov was clearly the better player for whatever it was, the first 12, 13 games, whatever. I, I think you have to take the full season to an account. And it's great that we have a debate, but at the end of the day, the fact that Kaprizov was that good on day one, we shouldn't, we shouldn't take that away from him. Like that's something we still need to remember. Like the sad part of pitting the two against each other for the purposes of this exercise is that yeah. they would be the perfect players to play with each other. <laughs> like oh my term, yeah, they would. Oh yes, they would. Yeah. In terms of Kaprizov just carrying the puck, but then setting up like these beautiful tap-ins around the net for Robertson no. and having someone who could finally take advantage of all the opportunities he creates. Like it, it would be remarkable, obviously uh, two players on different teams, but um, mm-hmm. it's just funny to me thinking about it that like that um, one final Robertson stat to end this on a, on a real high note. I want the stars fans that are listening to be excited about this experience. Uh, and the craziest stat for me, I think that I've seen. So there's been 383 players who have played 500, five on five minutes this season. So that's a pretty big threshold, but a lot of players. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The stars are scoring 3.96 five on five goals per hour with Jason Robertson on the ice to put it into, which is the seventh most. All of the other players in the top 10 are basically Vegas's best players Stevenson, Stone, Pacioretty, and Theodore. It's a good team. Colorado's <laughs> best players, McKinnon, Rantanen, and Makar. And then Cotter, McDavid, and Patrice Bergeron and Jason Robertson. And Robertson is doing that while playing on a stars team that is scoring like 2.15 goals per hour as a team at five one five. And I think like the only teams worse than them are Anaheim, Detroit and Buffalo or something like that is the list. It's like, it's a bad five one five scoring team. And for him to be having the type of on ice impact that he has had in real minutes. Now, I think he's playing over like 18 minutes a night. Only Joe Pavelski plays more than him. Uh, since the start of March, like, and that's another conversation here. The fact that Rick bonus is trying, I mean, part of it is by necessity, I think like yeah. they have to, but like Rick bonus, yeah. just, just fully unleashing Jason Robertson on the world is trusting him as basically as mm-hmm. like his second most heavily used forward after everything we went to through in the past with being like, please play your skilled forwards, finally doing yes. it. And look at the results. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. 
And then the other thing too, that just, I, I think one last just Robertson thing, the fact they use him in the, uh, the fact they actually use him in the shootout because Rick bonus has been such a, I'm going to trust Tyler Sagan, Alexander Radulov, Jamie Ben, and maybe the guy that scored that night. The fact that he actually trusts Robertson to go into the shootout. It just, it's just so as much of like, Oh, okay. This guy is living by a different set of rules than we were than Dennis Gurionov was last year. Rightfully so. in in some cases, in some cases, now that's a whole another conversation, but we, uh, we don't have time for it. We've had that conversation before. Yeah, we, we, have. we can link back to like two other podcasts. And that. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've set our piece on Dennis Gurionov. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So just to put a bow on the stars component yep. of this, I think moving forward, regardless of what happens over these next couple of weeks, is it going to be a big summer for them from a team building perspective? Because it's going to be all about sort of, in my mind, being proactive and kind of lining pieces up, right? Because after next season, you've got Pavelski, Radulov, and Klingberg all coming off the books. And this team is, whatever it looks like, is going to look wildly differently. And I'm not sure it's necessarily good enough of a team to be like, all right, let's just... uh Let's just roll it back without preparing for what that feature is going to look like, especially with uh, a player of Miro Heiskanen stature, for example, needing a new deal as an RFA this summer. Like, there's going to be some big decisions that need to be made for the stars. So, I don't know. Do, do you want to take this from the direction and perspective of Klingberg and what we do, like what that looks like in terms of the rest of his stars tenure and sort of the near and um, long term future for him, or? from Heiskanen's perspective and sort of what that next deal is going to look like and uh, yeah, I mean, how aggressive yeah. they're going to be with that contract. Yeah. The, the, the Heiskanen one is interesting because um, you just look at for one of the things that just you keep in mind, um, Heiskanen and Heiskanen's agent is Ian Pulver. Ian Pulver is Thomas Shabbat's agent. So, um, and now Heiskanen's a much better player than Shabbat, but that is, that's the floor. So you got to think from Heishkinen's representation from a group that already represents one of the other young defensemen that got a pretty big deal. That that's where the floor even starts with Heishkinen and knowing what I know about kind of where Heishkinen's camp is and where they've been before. I know they're probably going to be looking for that big deal. So the interesting thing with the stars and one of the lasting kind of legacies of this team and whether this team is able to compete and, and everything like that will be, it's going to come down to this. You, you mentioned Klingberg, you mentioned Heishkin, but the key question is going to be, did they overpay us Lindell? That, that is, that is going to be the key question. The key question is because John Klingberg got S. Lindell paid and um, John Klingberg and S. Lindell is a good defenseman, but he's overpaid and John Klingberg got him that money by basically being, by, with what he's done as his partner. Well, S.L. Lindell has a particular set of skills and he having he, John Klingberg allows him to focus on those skills. And it does, but you don't pay that much for that. Those no, specific without Klingberg there. Yeah, exactly. And so the question is going to be more so for Dallas with whether they can continue to compete in the future is will Lindell's contract with what they paid for that. And will it hurt? Maybe. And I don't think that contract would have hurt them in a, non-COVID world. And I think it's just one of those where that contract is going to look even worse because of the flat cap. And as they figure it out, will they be able to keep and build the, and, and be able, will they be able to keep Haitian and Klingberg? I don't know if they will, especially now with 
what's going to happen? I mean, Hintz is going to Hintz is going to need to in a couple of years. Hintz is going to be up for big money if he's playing if he keeps playing the same way, and it's it's a tough spot. Like I think Dallas Dallas is kind of in a very what you do with John Klingberg is a fascinating debate. And I am personally of the opinion that you don't trade John Klingberg. He's one of the best in the world at what he does, the way he walks the blue line, the way he does that. To me, there are other ways you make it work. But I also understand that you have the conversation about do you strike while the value is highest? Personally, I would not, but it is. But I'm, I'm... The thing I would say about that is I, I still feel like the value Klingberg provides the stars significantly um, exceeds and I agree with you. how I think he's valued around the league for, for whatever reason, yeah. um, which isn't to say that there isn't a team or two out there that if he was made available would become supremely interested. But I think it's a situation where anyone that's like been super upset with Klingberg making mistakes or, or, or this and that, like, be careful if you're a Stars fan, oh, be because when he's when be he's gone, careful. when he's gone, you're gonna miss John Klingberg. Like, oh, it's not gonna yeah. look the same. And like, I remember I tweeted out a highlight reel of him walking the blue line earlier in the season, yeah. and like a Stars, a couple Stars fans were like, "Oh, this is great," but let's see him in the playoffs when he's not doing. It. It's like he was awesome in the playoffs last year. He was, like, he was their he was their best defenseman in the playoffs last year. Like, yes, Heishkin was great, but look at what. Klingberg did throughout the playoffs. He he was their main play driver. He was the fe- he was the person who he was the, he was the player that pretty much drove that team. He was the reason this one of the main reasons the Stars were able to not get hemmed in and in that Vegas series. I mean, you if you take a look, if you kind of isolate Klingberg from that uh that Vegas series, which the Stars basically somehow won in the gentleman's sweep with the the five games, like. That series, the fact John Kling, John Klingberg skated the stars to that five game series. Now his point totals were his point totals weren't astronomical, but what he did to not let Dallas get hemmed in by a Vegas team that typically rocks other teams in shot share, like that's that's incredible. And it is, it is a very much if you are a stars fan thinking the stars need to move on from John Klingberg, you are going to uh uh, it's the type of people. It's the same type of people who tried to run Sergey Sergey Zubov out of town, and fifty six is hanging in the rafters in Dallas. So we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there were certainly stretches last postseason where where he was like just single handedly willing them offensively to sequences. 100%. Even in the Stanley Cup final yeah. against the, the the Lightning, like the, he yeah. was otherworldly. And but at the same time, like he's going to be, I think, thirty by the time his next deal starts, and he's a player who's been underpaid at 4.25 million for like the entirety of his NHL career, basically. Right. Like it was a great, great piece of business, obviously with risk inherited by the stars at the time. But when you sign a player with 41 NHL games at that point of the pro experience or in the NHL experience to the deal, they did like pretty much as soon as he signed that and he kept playing the way he had been before that deal, I was like, all right, this is underpaid for him at this point. And so this is going to be his last real chance to cash in. And I wonder what, he's going to be looking for what the financial market around the league is going to be looking like at that point. But um, it's, it's an interesting conversation and same with Heiskanen, right? Because you mentioned Shabbat who got eight, eight, eight years, 64 million. We've also seen guys like Wierenski and Charlie McAvoy go with a three-year bridge deal route uh, to get closer to unrestricted free agency. Now 
You know, Heiskanen's only think, 21, right? So he's he's a bit of a ways away from that. But I think Heiskanen, if I'm just thinking from a perspective of, if I'm, I know on one hand, they're probably going to look, hey, we want big biggest possible deal. I, if I'm Heiskanen's camp, I'm looking at, I want that two, three bridge year deal, not just to get closer to, to UFA status, but even more so to get out of flat cap status. Like I don't want to lock in my, I don't want to lock in my contract in a flat cap world. I want to put myself in a spot. If I'm that type of player, I want to put myself in a spot where two years from now, I want to be able to capitalize when the cap does start to go up, when the escrow deal is finally paid off and teams can start spending. That's when I want, that's when I want to be able to make my money. And so it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what the line of thinking is going to be from the two sides on this. I think Dallas is going to be Dallas is going to want to get that eight year deal done because they know that they're going to have to pay. They know that they're, it's going to cost them a ton more. If in two years he's available after if two, if, if in two years of more, uh, more Norris votes and more of the reputation finally gets out there, it's going to be Dallas is going to have to pay way more two years down the line. So they're going to Dallas. If you're Dallas. You got to sign him for eight years. Now, if you're Haskinen, you're not no signing one. away eight years at this point. No, you're not. You shouldn't. You shouldn't. That would be bad business. So. I mean, it's a lot of money to turn down. Um, if he wants to take it, he can go yeah. ahead. Um, go ahead. But you know, as his agent, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd love that commission right now. Um, yeah. but yeah, and it, and you know, especially since the you know the complicating factor here is Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes are also uh, RFAs as well. And it's not a complicated factor from yeah. high school's perspective, but I wish like I could see what those deals are going to look like before I figured out what his deal because like you know, they're, they're going to be sort of inextricably linked between, even though they're different players, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of money. It's, it's going to be a, a, a tug of war between the two sides, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I'm very fascinated to see how it goes out. So I think this is a good pivot point for us then, because you're yep. talking about the flat cap and um, you know, you are now the athletics. Uh, what's your official title? The, the business writer? Uh, business NHL business is the official title, but uh I cut I, business of hockey, NHL business, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. I kind of call, I, I get to cover, I get to cover weird, weird stuff and financial stuff and kind of try to write about things that no one else writes about on the sport. I like, I think on a daily basis. So I like it. Things like that. So this is a good chance for us to loop yeah. in then the, um, and plug the, the athletic, uh, fan Serbian broadcast you've been doing yep. and also mm-hmm. sort of tie that into, um, the future of, of the NHL on television in the United States between ESPN and and Turner and what that's going to look like and sort of the ambitions behind that and how it's going to affect the league from beyond just the entertainment product, just the the financials of it. So I don't know, you you can take that any, any uh, direction you want from that. It's it's kind of one of, one of the things about the whole TV deal. So we now have in the United States, we have, obviously there was the big deal of the NHL's going back to you. It's kind of funny, actually it's, it's a, maybe a perfect way to I'm so I'm sitting in my hotel room right now. And there was, I think it was the, what was the game? The game that was supposed to be tonight. It was stars it abs was, on it and NBC. Yeah. Well, or, it was, or, sorry. Abs, uh, abs nights. Yeah. So my hotel does not have NBC. I could not pull up. However, I've got ESPN on in the background here. I could, I got both ESPN and TNT on my TV. I know I couldn't get NBCSN on my TV, so I wasn't able to watch the, I wasn't able to pull up that game on the TV. I think that's a perfect encapsulation of, if you talk about the TV partners of, of where the NHL is going, 
that's a perfect example of they're moving from the channel that was NBC's auxiliary channel, which was nice, to channels that people actually have and people actually watch. Like NBCSN, we have to remember its origins were the Outdoor Life Network. That's that's what NBCSN was. It was the Outdoor Life Network. And but Turner, TNT, TBS, ESPN, ESPN, ESPN2, ABC, all that stuff. Those are channels and those are places people actually look to go watch sports. It's places where they actually have it in a hotel room. If you go to a sports bar, they actually have the game. They actually have the TV set to TNT or ESPN because they know there will be a game on that night. And the NHL in the United States, I think with the NBCSN deal, like they always we're a top four. We're we're a big four sport in the United in the United States. Uh, you got to act like it, right? Like yeah. you got like like you got to act like it. You got to get. You have to be in a spot where the NHL will be in now, where you have two national TV partners. The NFL has uh, ABC, ESPN, CBS, NBC, Amazon. They're one. Either way, the NFL has obviously that's the that's the high water mark. Has four or five. Major League Baseball in the United States has ESPN. It's got. Uh, ESPN Turner has a game. You have uh, three networks on and Major League Baseball. The NBA has ESPN and Turner. If you want to be a major four sport in the United States, you have to act like it, and you have to capitalize on these deals, and you have to get the multiple partnerships. One of the biggest mistakes the NHL did was signing that ten-year deal with NBC in 2011. Signing a ten-year deal where. $2 billion, $200 million per year on average. It was, they devalued their product. They committed to, they basically, they locked themselves into something where they weren't able to put themselves into a position to adapt. Like the, the NHL, maybe those rights were the right price for the first two or three years of that 10-year deal, but they were devaluing their product and devaluing the money brought in, keeping the salary cap lower, everything by signing a 10-year deal. Like, even this deal, one of the main criticisms I've heard just talking to people is these deals with ESPN and Turner, there's a lot of real excitement about it. The one criticism is it's seven years, and they said, like, well, five years would have been more preferential just because with how rights change and how the world changes, there's probably maybe you're leaving money on the table by going seven years, but that's nothing compared to going 10 years and basically giving NBC Sports all the power in NBC for that time. And so, the NHL is moving into a stratosphere where it needs to be to be a top four sport in the United States. I know, and and part of the ESPN uh, um, thing gets overplayed, and sometimes it does. Like everyone's like, "Oh well," people say, "Like oh, magically it's going to be an ESPN, and we're going to snap our fingers, and every kid, every kid in the United States can be playing hockey." That that's not how it works. It's not going to be. It's not that simple. It does how it is. However. It is, it is, however, that kind of default for pushing what sports people watch in the United States. It is that it, it is that space where it's, it drives culture, for lack of that lack of a better word. And it's something where you look at what the NBA is, and the NHL had a partner in NBC that was willing to let hockey be the old white guys in suits. That's what NBC let hockey be. Yep. NBC, NBC allowed the NHL to stick with that. You look at how they did their broadcasts. Like in NBC and NBC sports broadcasts, 
you talked about the X and O's of hockey. You dumbed it down a little bit, and that's all you did. You look at how you look at the and, and there's 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 these people that are fascinating that that fascinating interesting that play this game that we never hear these stories ever on television. Maybe every once in a while they would do some sort of feature about how how a player helped the charity or something like that. But really, we never hear anything about other than Brent Burns who they point at and say, "Oh, Brent Burns is weird." What yeah. else? What else? What else do we ever hear about players now? coverage of the sport needs to get to a point of how do you open um, avenues to get more people into the sport in the United States? Cause it, Canada, everyone's going to still watch the game yeah. now in, in the United States, you need a network. That's going to, if, if someone, you, you need a network that does what TNT and ESPN do for the NBA, where they actually talk about it all the time. Like I was talking to somebody from NHL network today about how the reason NHL network has really been, NHL network for the last six, seven, eight years, however long it's been around, it's the only place where if you wanted to turn the TV on at 11 AM or something like that, to hear them talk about hockey, it's the only place in the United States you could do that. And now hopefully through their ancillary programming, ESPN will do that. And TNT will do things like that. And it's, it's a really good step for the league just to be with these partners. Now the deal does come with, you have to, you have to, the deal does come with some, caveats for lack of a better word where like one of the other criticisms we talked about the the term is probably maybe a little bit too long but the other caveat is just the nhl probably nhl didn't bring in the money they thought they were going to bring in on the deal like these are these deals are wins in getting the partners but it is not uh, so gary bettman two years ago in a pre-pandemic word basically I've talked to enough people to know this pretty well. He, he told he, he basically told the board of governors he would be able to bring in seven hundred fifty million dollars per year from the U.S. TV rights, which is maybe and and he brought six hundred forty five million, which is still a good amount. But over the course of seven years, that's seven hundred million dollars left on the table that didn't that didn't come in. And now pandemic impacted it. The NFL rights impacted it, but it's still. From a Gary Bettman standpoint, give him credit for getting Turner and ESPN to the table, but also don't give him a pass for saying like, oh, this saved hockey. No, it's a good deal, but it's not the great deal that, that it's not the great deal that is going to that is going to get rid of the flat cap anytime soon or anything well, like that. What, what's the I ramb- say? I, ra- I rambled there, but <laughs> no, no, you're right. You had a bunch of great points there. Like hey, it said it better than I could have, but like what what's the saying? Like the hockey is the greatest sport, but the NHL is like the worst league. Like it's, it's the product sells itself, right? Like you watch Connor McDavid skate really mm-hmm. fast, and do something at a million miles an hour. Like that is such a, a, a remarkable um, athletic feat that yep. anyone that's like just a regular human being that is interested in competition and sports and cool stuff on their television or their laptop or their iPad or their phone is going to be like interested in that it's up to the league and, and in turn it's broadcasting partners to enable people to get access to that in, and like in a palatable way where you can watch it easily and respect it and, and enjoy it. And the league needs to do a better job of that. I have a really good, I have a really good point on this actually. So like, cause the, the league has the, so just to kind of actually tease a story that I can say this now because this will publish this. will publish. I got a story coming out tomorrow morning. I was given a demo recently of the NHL um, SAP coaching insights app. 
And um, in that app, they track, any coach can pull up and track how fast and how far a player has skated in that given game. And so I have a graphic from, where is it? I'm going to read this to you right now while we're talking. I have a graphic where from the, let's see, the one of the Canucks Oilers games from earlier this season where it shows me the max speed McDavid hit on each shift. Like he hit 20.6 miles per hour, 20.6, 22.2, 21, 22 miles per hour. Um, and like you, like just things like that, where if, and that data is cool. Like that is, that is the type of thing where like it's in the coach's iPad. What do the coach, why do the coaches care how fast he's going? That does nothing for them. Why are we <laughs> like, no, the coaches like, are like, wow, he looked really fast. He blew by our defenseman. Let's quantify the speed of that so that we can recalibrate. Like, no. why, why, why do they care about? No, let's put that on the broadcast. Like that, that makes, it's one thing to say, Oh, Connor McDavid's fast. It's another thing to go and put into a broadcast and be like, Hey, he's going 23 miles an hour out there. That's, that's, that's the type of thing where it's like, okay, that means something like it's, it's just, there's so many things now that the league has, and there's these, this inventory of data and stuff like that, that is really cool that they could use to tell some stories that they just have never done it. And hopefully the changing of the broadcast partners, hopefully the, hopefully that kind of, and hopefully some fresh minds who haven't run hockey broadcasting, get some hands on this. Hopefully that, that leads us to actually using some of this stuff and actually kind of being able to take that step. Be like, okay, let's, let's take some, sure. There's some things that work, but let's, let's look at what we need to do. What, what's, what, how do we get that kind of that casual fan interested in, in making things enjoyable to them and, and wowing them and being like, Hey, you know what? Like, I thought one of the, I know a bunch of stars fans were really excited. For example, like when the goal that Dennis Gurionov scored to send the stars to Stanley Cup final, that puck came in at 109 miles an hour. That is, that is a astonishing number. Why don't we hear more about that? Why, why don't, why, like, why don't we bring more things like that into the broadcast as opposed to like bringing up that one nugget every once in a while? Like, yeah, I, I, some, I agree. Yeah. Like from, yeah, analyst perspective, I think the value of it is overblown because I don't think it matters necessarily how fast the guy oh, no. shoots. No, I think from a storytelling perspective, like it's like baseball when you when you see yeah. a play, when you see a pitcher throwing 100 miles per hour, it's like wow, that was cool. Like I like seeing yeah, that like, it was 102 miles an hour. It says it on my screen. Like that's a cool yeah, thing like, to show. Like and it's like an entertainment. Like I'm watching. Like, I got ESPN on in the background right now. I'm watching. Like so, I'm watching a guy pitch. That pitch, I will have no idea how fast that pitch is. Yeah, you need but to see it on the screen. But if they do 104, if, if it's the exact same pitch, if they put 104, it, but it was really 90, I would have no idea. But if they put 104, I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's cool. Like, like yeah. <laughs> you're like, it's a big number. And it's also yeah. makes you realize that you cannot do that as a regular yes. person. And this is why you should be watching the pros do it because they do it yeah. much better than we can. So, yeah. um, yeah, no, I think that's a good, good note to, uh, to end on. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think the league needed a, uh, a seat at the adult table here. And um, mm-hmm. certainly like, I think with NBC's coverage, like obviously you could tell like the writing was on the wall and uh, this was going to be the last year as some of the, the programming has been, especially this year has been just so lackluster that I think uh, NHL fans are right to be wanting and hoping for more uh, in terms of the U S coverage. So hopefully we get that and 
they embrace this as a, as a new fresh start and opportunity to uh, implement some creative strategies. Um, Sean, that's going to be it for today's show. This was a blast. You're a busy guy. I'm going to let you uh, keep enjoying your, uh, your unhealthy snacks here while you've got your uh, hotel room to yourself. And uh, what's your, uh, what's your handle again? It's Sean Shapiro, right? Yep, just Sean Shapiro. Yep, Sean Shapiro. S E A N. And you've got the uh, yeah, you've got the story coming up that people should check out. So this was a blast, man. I'm glad we I'm glad we got to do this. And um, let's check in sometime down the road. Maybe I feel like an off season podcast for us is going to be really good in terms of talking about random business stuff. Oh, it's always fun, man. And, uh, awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to a sixth time. Awesome. Have a good one, man. <laughs> Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDOcast.